2: That's up to twenty five percent off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is not a diving podcast with
0: scuba. Cool Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, we are in the midst of the 2023 Not A Diving Podcast pledge drive. It was supposed to be ending today, but we've decided to extend it for a week. We have t-shirts to give away and we need supporters for the podcast. Now, I did a podcast yesterday. I appeared on someone else's podcast, which was a psychology podcast, basically. And On last week's show, I think I demonstrated my lack of psychological knowledge by appealing to the non-generosity of our British audience, or rather pointing it out. And that yielded in a very, very negligible result, I have to say. My attempts at guilt-tripping our British listeners into supporting the show were not successful. It was not a successful strategy. So, let's just forget about that this week, shall we? If you want to support us, if you're enjoying the show, then please do so. If you look at the show notes, there are details of how to do that through Patreon or through a direct donation. And uh, you can do either of those things at scubarofficial.io support. And during the pledge drive, if you sign up to the Musicality tier on Patreon, then you get the Musicality t-shirt, which is an awesome t-shirt. I'm going to post a picture of it on Twitter today on X or whatever, however you say that, platform these days. Anyway, it would be great if you did so. We'd be extremely grateful and it would help the show going forward. So yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. It's open for another week though. So get involved if you haven't done so already. And thank you so much to everyone who has signed up already. So yeah, double thumbs up to you. Okay. On the show this week, we welcome someone who made a real difference to people during the pandemic, during lockdown. Black Bandcamp, which then became the Black Artist Database, was an initiative that Nix, our guest this week, started with a bunch of other people to try and get people supporting black artists during that period when everyone was screwed and didn't have any shows and wasn't making any money. And they were extremely successful and they have built that into a really cool website and platform and general organisation now called the Black Artist Database and it was great that she agreed to come on the show to talk about it amongst other things including her life and career to date and yeah just music stuff in general so yeah great to have her on before we get started with that we've already covered the pledge drive so if you're not going to do that that's totally fine leave us a review or a rating follow the show on whatever platform you're listening to this Follow the Spotify playlist, there's a link in the show notes to that playlist, and join us in the Discord, recordingscom slash Discord, but obviously during the Pledge Drive, the best thing to do is support the show directly, patreon.com slash scubaofficial or scubarofficial.io slash support. Okay, without further delay, here is Nix. Nyx, welcome to the show. How's it going? Hey Paul,
1: I'm good. Um... Yeah, thanks for having me on. I finally got to do this, so looking
0: forward to it. Yeah, we were trying to do this at ADE, but flight schedules conspired against us, alas. So yeah, good to be here finally.
1: Yeah, um there were just loads of like delays that weekend, I think. So yeah, we get to do this now online.
0: Yeah, I mean to be honest, I actually prefer doing them like this anyway. Like the the few live ones that I've done. I mean, it's very different, you know, when you're, when you're both sat in front of an audience, mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, the extra nerves. And obviously, yeah, it's, it's kind of truncated in terms of time as well. So,
1: Yeah, definitely agree.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to start with the most important question that I'm going to ask you today, which is, have you listened to the Andre 3000 album yet?
1: <laughs> um, so obviously it's based around the flute, right? Or just windpipe instruments in general wind instruments in general yeah. Um but I haven't listened to it yet it's today the 17th oh yes it is okay, yeah, 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 yeah it's out yeah. I, um, <laughs> I don't have Twitter and I don't really stay online but I had caught uh, wind of it so I'm looking forward to kind of an ambient windy album Um so I'm going to definitely yeah. listen to that <laughs> have you listened to it?
0: yeah I mean I actually had no idea what it was going to be I, I was expecting it to be a oh. rap album and then put it on this morning I was like wow okay this is not what I was expecting, but um, probably the vibe that we
1: need actually right now. To be honest, I imagine like quite calming and chilled.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty. It was pretty nice. awesome actually. I just had it on this morning. Yeah. I was like, yeah, cool. I mean, like the tracks are like fifteen minutes long as well, which is like right. also totally not normal for now. <laughs> anyway, okay. I wanted to start actually. My actual first question was going to be just about where you grew up, actually, because I know you went to Union Bath. And you've spent quite a bit of time in the southwest generally, but you're from London originally, is that right?
1: Yeah, so I was born and bred in Brockley, which is in South East London. So I'm from South East London, and um, yeah, was brought up around the area. I went to school there. I trained dancing as a musician there. Um, Yeah, went to school there up until sixth form before moving to Bath. So yeah, I'm I'm a South East London girl.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. And you're classically trained musician as well, right? You did the grades on piano, which I also did by the way. yeah,
1: wow, okay, yes, yeah. so, you know yeah, so I went to um, Trinity Laban, which is um it's a conservatoire of music and dance in Deptford, and so I went there from the age of four and I started by doing contemporary dance, so I was doing that for about seven years and then it's so when I turned about eleven, I went on to do additional I wanted to explore outside of just contemporary dance. So I went on to do body conditioning, which is actually very intense. And I did some ballet, but ballet wasn't, I didn't train that in the same way as I did contemporary dance, which was pretty much full time. Ballet was just more a complimentary activity because actually you find in terms of like your body and your stance and your posture and kind of like muscular memory and endurance, ballet really helps strengthen you. So then if you do continue to dance, It was just a good body form to just top up what I was already doing. And then I went on to do uh, piano also. But I really, annoyingly, I stopped at grade six.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: Which is quite frustrating. And I'm always like, why didn't I just finish the last two (laughs) grades? But I remember I was, I think I was like 15 or 16. And um, this is around the time when I started to like grow my nails. And (laughs) my piano teacher, I remember my piano tutor, his name's John, specifically said to me, you cannot have long nails and continue to play the piano. <laughs> and I was like, genuinely like, Oh, Hey, this is like an actual ultimatum that I'm going to have to pick. And not that I actually, you know, actively stopped doing piano because of nails, but I think I just, I was becoming that age where like, it just fell off my priority list also. Yeah. Um. But yeah, as it is.
0: So going to, uh, going to dance from four, which of your parents um was responsible for that?
1: I think, both I think it's funny because my mum is like the organized one and my dad's the creative one so like my dad is the musician in the family and that's where I get my everything from but it would have been my mum that was like we need to send her to a dance school um but yeah I guess both of them combined um and at the so at the time I was a reception class and there was one girl in my class also and we were like really good friends and We both, I don't know if our parents decided this or we did, but we both applied together and then did it together. So that was nice. But it was just something that was always, I guess like I was always doing musical stuff with my dad from like a baby. So it kind of always made sense that I was going to do something. And my older brother was a guitarist, which my dad got him into because my dad was a guitarist. So it was just kind of like the natural progression for me, I guess. um, I think Laban because the building now is more like Creekside, but they have some in Greenwich and Deptford. I think it was kind of new at the time as well. So, um, yeah, it was just a really nice, you know, opportunity for me to express myself, I guess, outside of traditional education and learning. And um, it took up most of my weekends, though, as a child.
0: So is your dad a professional musician?
1: He is, yes. So he's a guitarist. um, So he used to be in a band and... I used to tour. Um, and yeah, so he's always done this since he was a child when he moved to the UK. So he lived between Belgium and Switzerland. My dad's dad is Congolese. So they kind of grew up in the different Francophone countries. And that's where he kind of got into it. I don't know if you know much about kind of Congolese, the culture and the music, but they're really much into their kind of soukous and that kind of style of music. So my dad was like really heavy into that and um formed a band he also actually was the lead guitarist for a very famous musician called Papa Wemba and he did one of the most infamous Red Bull Music Academies in France in like the early 2000s and my dad's actually in that um
0: really wow yeah
1: um yeah so like it's always kind of been yeah it's always been about and you know as I said he got my brother into guitar so we used to tour with him sometimes and um The first time I went to Glastonbury was with my dad when I was five and he performed on the West Holt Uh stage.
0: What year was that? That was
1: 1998, 99, 98, 99. Um, So yeah, like it's always, I guess it's just always been there. And then like my mum's family is St. Lucian. So again, like growing up in the St. Lucian culture, which is interesting because it's one of the Caribbean countries that speak French, which, so I guess there's that, that, um, correlation between my dad and mum's musical upbringings with that kind of I guess it's a combination of like Zuc, Sucus, um, then actual like Caribbean music but then like the flair that kind of develops out of it when you kind of bring in say like Brazilian funk that kind of style. Um, so if you listen to anything like, I don't know yeah, if anyone's listened to this, check out people like Papa Wemba um, and that that kind of style of music is um yeah so it's just that kind of really cool flary west african sound but with a bit of a kind of i guess what we would call it is world music in a very basic general term um yeah but yeah so that's always kind of been there so yeah
0: i'm gonna display my ignorance here but Zouk <laughs> and zookas mm-hmm. those are, are those styles of music
1: yeah they're like specific genres so I always I always kind of met them from a Caribbean perspective, but actually they originate and derive from from West African, generally Francophone countries. Mm. And they have a very specific it's that there's a guitar, there's a um it's a very specific sound that is that is created and then a lot of the kind of smaller Caribbean islands, you would hear them played at functions. So that is a sound that I would always hear. Growing up, there's actually a really famous—I don't know if they're from Haiti or—I think they are Haitian. They're they're a famous uh, Caribbean like soca band who like emerged in 2000. And um, there's a song called Zouk La Medisaman Nuni, that was like really big in the early 2000s. And that's like a really good example of that style of music that comes out of those like Francophone
0: regions. Yeah, okay. Like the only artist that, um, from that region that I'm really familiar with is Ali Uh uh-huh.
1: Aha, okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, and his son also, View Toure, And they're, they're both obviously very much guitar-based mm-hmm. music. Um, is I mean, like in, in comparison to that kind of stuff, how, what is the similarities?
1: It's quite similar. I would say that with the Sukus and Zook, it's... Um, do you know what? I, I can never really describe it because it's just kind of a feeling, but it's very much... The, the guitar is the dominant sound throughout the songs. And then what is kind of a key feature are the vocals and the vocals often are like songs that tell a story often around like politicians or MPs or, um, you know, in these, it's kind of like folklore, like, you know, satire with, you know, governments who are exploitative and stuff like that. But it's all mm. very much reflective of, I guess, what goes on in those countries, perhaps maybe, um, yep. But the, the guitar sound is like the, the, the beautiful element of it always. And that's what people always kind of go back to. Um, and that's the sound that resonates a lot.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so, and your dad, obviously a guitar player. So was the mm. band that he was in that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, it was that kind of stuff. So they, yes, yeah, so it was kind of like Zook, um, Sukus. And then, you know, kind of more broadly, like if you listen to some of like the bee lines and stuff like that, kind of more generally what we would probably now know as like maybe kind of indie rock, but in that style and in that kind of format. Right. But yeah, predominantly that style um, was the genre that they were pushing.
0: Nice. So mm. was piano your first instrument then?
1: My first instrument was recorder. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. As I think a lot of us are like triangle maybe in school, but um, <laughs> yeah, sure. you know, it was my first like formal instrument Um. I always wanted to toy with, like, the flute or clarinet. But by the point of me starting piano, I think I was 11. And that might have... It wasn't too late, but I think with wind instruments, you really have to start from young to train, like, your lungs and your windpipes. So... But, no, piano... um, My mum used to always put on, like, jazz FM and Magic. And we used to listen to, like, a lot of Nat King Cole and his daughter and, you know, that kind of music. So piano is just, yeah, very strong. Yeah, plays a big role in those genres. So... My first formal instrument.
0: Yeah. Um, was that something that came naturally to you? I mean, in, in terms of playing it, I mean.
1: Yeah, I think when I was learning it, so with me, it's, and I, f- I find the same with production, like learning it was quite easy because um, like, when you have this kind of internal um, metronomy, which I feel like I have, like to learn a song isn't that difficult. What I found the most difficult part of piano was the coordination, so like my brain being like, okay, your right hand needs to do that. Your left hand needs to do that. Your foot needs to do that. And reading at the same time. That's probably the most, that was probably the most challenging part for me. But to actually learn a song, that was actually what I was, that was one of my strengths. Um, like learning the music and, you know, like when the breaks are or, you know, where to emphasize certain bits or where the accents are and stuff like that. Like reading the music was quite, um, I quite enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I um, my experience of playing the piano was uh, a bit of a battle, actually. And then it was only when I picked up a guitar, actually, that music started to make sense to me. And I think, I, think um, I mean, the coordination was definitely an issue there. I mean, I, I still can barely, like, play a bass line with my left hand and, and do anything <laughs> else with my right hand. is like, <laughs> it's still beyond me even now. But um, yeah, I mean, I just found that, like picking up guitar was different because I, I felt able to sort of jam around mm. on it in a way that I was just never able to do with the piano. And then and then when going into production, that, that totally made sense to me, you know, because mm. it was just like, you, you can just mess around and get something going and then and play with it. So what, is there, was there anything in between finishing piano at grade six and however you got into production? Or was Was there a kind of instrument or a kind of musical thing in between those two points?
1: There wasn't. So I finished at Trinity when I was... 18 so I still had those final two years um and then there was kind of a bit of a gap with anything musical that gap year was well those gap years were when I was at uni but at uni I went into radio so I mean that's not as musical in like a practical sense I guess as you know dancing or playing piano is but I guess it still is in that it still falls into that realm so there was a big gap between me actually doing anything musical, you know, in in terms of using my, you know, self to create music. Um, And I do think I miss that. So I guess, like, years later now, finally getting back into production has been, like, like, that kind of nice, cathartic practice for me. And I do find it very cathartic because it's just such a nice way to just, like, be alone and block everything out and channel, you know, Internally is going on into like mm. a piece, and there's always ideas in my head. Like I have so many notes in my voice notes on my phone of like things that I might like record myself or sounds that I might hear. Or you know, you you hear things, you're like, oh, that would make a really nice line or like that would make a nice drum or something, you know. So yeah, it's been really nice to like now be able to get back into that and transfer everything back into production. And actually, the piano has now come back into hand because. I have an Arteria keyboard and um, I play, I really try and play a lot of the elements in my songs myself, rather than just sample packs. So like all the songs that I've released so far, at least three elements I've played in myself, like the bass lines I always play myself. And then I try and, you know, I use Arteria Lab and I might find some sounds and then I'll like play notes of them and put it into like a MIDI and then just like, you know, alter it a bit. But yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I find that, it's like spending time in the studio is really the only time during my whole life where I completely switch off from everything else, mm. and it's—I mean—cathartic is yeah. I mean, it's a—it's a, it's a good word for it actually because I mean, it's really um unlike anything else, you know. And and time when you're having a good session, time just stops almost, mm. you know. It really just becomes uh an almost meditative kind of thing mm. you know and I just don't really get that anywhere else is that I uh, do mean does that resonate at all
1: 100% like I definitely feel the same in in terms of you know as I said like being alone and just channeling loads of ideas internal ideas out and it's I find it a really nice process you know in terms of like listening back you know adding um cue points to say like okay I need to add this and do that and then you know challenging myself to like what it needs to be I really, really do enjoy it. It's a bit like, I kind of, it's a bit mathematical as well. Like, mm. so at uni I did statistics as part of my degree. So did you? I, wow, Yeah, okay. I did um, sociology of statistics. So like kind of like social science vibes, like quantitative research stuff. Like, like I find it that element as well. So like, you know, but yeah, no, I find it very cathartic. And for me, it's just like that whole idea of channeling something internal outward. Um, and then having this like final product and, Before I started to put music out, I would read like loads of articles from like producers and DJs who I have looked up to for a while. And like one of the big, well, a couple of the big things that would always come out. One of them would be, and this is generally from producers who are a bit older than me, maybe like by 10 to 15 years. One of them would be, they would say that they regret not putting out music earlier in their career. That was the first thing. And then the second kind of recurring theme was this idea of, the challenge being when to stop. So like, when do you finish a song? Yeah. And then I kind of, so so that's, they're the two things that I've always kind of let sit with me. Like I would never, the last thing I'd want to do is in 10 years regret, you know, not putting music out and then doing it and it feels too late. And so that's that was one of the reasons why I started doing it. And then the second one is, okay, when do you stop? And I, I actually do do that because a lot of people say like, I never know when to stop. So then I end up with like 50 unfinished songs on a hard drive. And that's actually like a big fear of mine because that kind of lack of organisation would drive me insane. I kind of need to finish (laughs) something to then move on. So they're two like um, pieces of advice that I've kind of internalised over the few years. And I really, really implement when I'm working on a track and I actually make sure that I finish a track and I don't go back to it. And um, I just, now I'm just like, just put it out.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's an extremely good piece of advice, actually. And and actually, it's a an ability, which uh, I think for a lot of people is, is quite difficult. I mean, just knowing when something's finished and being able to let go of something like that. Because I mean, there is a, definitely a tendency to, to like tinker and tinker and tinker and, you know, just endless adjustments of stuff which, you know, <laughs> 0.01% of the listeners are going to pick up on,
1: right? Well, this is it. And that's what, very easy to be obsessed about. It. That's what I've come to realise as well. It's like, I remember, I was, um what song was it? I was mixing down. And I, it's always that last 5% that drives you insane. <laughs> you know, like that <laughs> final 5% of, like, the song's basically finished. But you're doing, like, you listen to it in, like, I do this thing while I'll listen to it on different speakers. And then say there's a part where I'm like, can you hear it enough or is it too loud? I will keep going back to it. And I'm like, do you know what? No one's even going to notice this. Why am I? But, yeah, it's always that final 5%. And at the moment, like I'm mixing my tracks down myself as well because I just um it's probably something I always say maybe in the future I won't have the time to do. But at the moment I'm making myself do it because I just wanna you know you like the way you know what elements you wanna bring forward and you know, the the way you want it to sound. But I always find that final five percent is the bit where I have to really be like, okay, stop. Like this is this is it. But it is the hardest part I
0: find. (laughs) it's the worst part it's the it's a part where it can very easily stop being fun as well yeah. you know it's like,
1: and you're just and then like sometimes you get really confused and you're like but this doesn't but then no when you like step away for it well i do this i step away for it for like three days and then i come back and i'm like no this is actually fine and then yeah and then i'll send it to like a few people who are like trust their ear as well just and sometimes they're like no this sounds absolutely fine and yeah but um yeah, I, I really enjoy the production element and it's something that like with my agent I, I I've spoken to about it and I now actively have like one or two weekends off every month where I can just not be out and just lock myself mm. in my home. Especially now it's yeah. autumn winter. Um so yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean I think mixing's actually a really important thing to to learn as a as a new producer coming, someone, you know, sort of developing their style and developing their kind of skills in this studio, I think mixing, I think is crucial. And I think people who don't do it early on really miss out on mm. quite a lot, you know, mm. because and actually, I mean, particularly with, with dance music, the mix down is such an important part of it and quite a lot of creative choices that go into it actually come at the mix down stage. I find so, I mean, depending on how you do it, obviously, but mm. um, I definitely think that's just the right way to do it is what you're doing. Absolutely.
1: No, I'd agree. And, and even though we're, we're both saying that the mixing down can be a challenge it just kind of hones in, hones in on your ear like your ear like my ear is a lot more intricate and, and acute in terms of like what it listens to and what it can hear than it was before and also I think that like post-production part of the track is really fun I mean I actually do it as I along so the I remember I never used to and then I realized I was like no I should be doing this as I'm producing the track so like mixing down and the kind of post-production element and then obviously again at the very end
0: that's how I do it too like so you're, yeah. when, when I kind of finish writing most of the mix is done I think that's a it's just something you just kind of get into the habit of doing I find mm. you know and then and then that second element or well, that second part of the process is, is that much easier but sorry I interrupted you no, no
1: no no it's fine it's like we're both just excited um, but yeah no I think yeah you're right I think it's important to learn mixing down because as I said again everyone has a particular way that they want the final product of your songs to sound and as you you know put out one two three four five tracks you'll realize that there is a particular sound that you have not just sonically but actually like the the actual way that the song sounds like the textures the feeling you know what elements you clearly are drawn more to that you bring forward the ones that you bring back like and spacing that's the part that i'm still honing on on is like space um Mm. Like spacing, because especially with my songs that are a lot more dynamic, I'm still trying to master that that breathing element of it. So how do you allow for space when there's a lot going on? And obviously mixing down is the perfect way to do that and let it breathe in certain points. But yeah.
0: Yeah. And those are creative decisions. They, they really are. Like, yeah. I mean, en- engineering is... Pretty creative, actually, in in this respect, and actually, you know, not just in music, but I mean, absolutely, it absolutely is. But when did you first get into dance music? Was actually going to be my next question. Like, I mean, because we've jumped jumped ahead there, but like, when did you first start? You know, going out and like, and what was the first kind of stuff which kind of resonated with you?
1: So it was definitely way before I was of an age to actually go into clubs. So my brother, he was a big vinyl, but also like tapes and cassettes. He collects so many tapes and collects cassettes and, and then CDs from live recordings. So our my house, so like in my parents' front room is split into like two big rooms and the back room is essentially where everything is. So like the turntables and the records and all those kind of the equipment. And it was my brother who, when he started going out in the UK, so that would have been like early 90s he would come home and bring back, like, stuff. So, like, it might be, like, a CD or, like, a cassette tape or if he was going record shopping. So he was the one that was kind of building a collection of dance music specifically, and it was a lot of... It was quite varied. It was definitely a lot of the kind of earlier house stuff, US house stuff, but then also the kind of emerging UK sound that was happening, like, in the mid-late 90s, and that, that kind of comes from everything in terms of, like, garage... Rhyme, jungle, like everything. Um, so yeah, he was going out all the time and playing also. And yeah, would literally come home and just play it. And I would just be sat there with him listening to it. And um, as I got older and then like he would explain to me like, you know, you know, these are the kind of events, this is how that it works Um, And that could be anything from, like, a sidewinder in Coventry (laughs) right down to, like, I don't know, some of their more illegal stuff that, you know, and then I'd come home and it'd be, like, a rave, like, a cassette with, like, loads of rave stuff. Um, So, yeah, it was my brother. And then I would say with that kind of free learning, free education that, like, at the time you don't realise or aren't aware of, the big big driver or medium was then radio because yeah as I said before you can actually physically enter a club I remember when I was I think I was like maybe 10 so what we now know is the BBC Radio One residency was in DJs in New DJs We Trust I think it was called oh yeah and like that, yeah. that was like for me so pivotal in that learning so you know yeah maybe from maybe I was like 11 10 11 and um Two fa- the, the, the big one for me was 2007, so I would have been a teenager, when Scream and Benga had their residency. Like, that was huge. Right,
0: yeah. I um,
1: think it was 2007. <laughs> um, yeah, it would have been
0: around then, for sure.
1: And just people like that, you know, like the UK sound, and like, you know, that's an entire new genre that was just emerging out, you know, out from South London also at that time. So I remember I went to like a few, and I was 14, 15, I went to a few that maybe I should have been at. Um, Dubstep parties like Let's Go Crazy, UTR. What we now know as Phonox used to be a different club and they used to host dubstep nights um, and raves that I used to go to.
0: Um,
1: So, yeah, I think just all of that combined and then being in London where a lot of the sounds like grime, dubstep, funky house, garage, like, you know, those sounds were born you're just kind of naturally around it all the time. Mm. So yeah, that was kind of like my introduction to dance music. And then more formally when I was in Bath, um, when I think my my first gig, well, no, no. When I was in Bath, um, the Club Night Origins, um, which is where it was born, started. And so they were bringing, you know, DJs. So this would have been like 2012, they were bringing DJs who maybe some of us didn't know at the time, or this was like the beginning of their career. So like people like Midland in 2000, I think I saw Midland in 2013 for the first time. Um, mm. Really ironically, I always remember this day, but I remember I saw Peggy Goo in Bath. They brought Peggy Goo as a headline <laughs> in Bath in 2014. Can you imagine that?
0: Yeah, what was she playing?
1: And it she, do you know what? Okay, <laughs> do you know what she was playing? She, she actually knows her music. Like she knows her music. She knows her, she yeah, her music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She knows her yeah, music. Sure. Like, so she was, she, it was a great set. I mean, probably a better set than what I have seen of maybe in recent online, but it was like 2014, a young Peggy Goo, 250 cat moles. So can like, you know, it's just crazy when you think about things like that. I didn't know who she was. Um. Yeah. So people like that. Um. So yeah, Origins like played a big part in bringing that to Bath and then, I got my first gig when I was in Bath. It was actually when B Traits was also uh, on the, in New D-Days We Trust. But this is when she was playing more, um, this was kind of before her techno era when it was more kind of dubsteppy DM, DMB, sorry, drum and bass vibe. Um, and I supported her. Yeah. When
0: she was still called Baby T. Baby Traits. Always... Baby,
1: I think it was Baby Traits. B, yeah. Baby T. Yeah. And uh, I think she just moved from Canada and she was doing her residency. And it was like more like, yeah, drum and bassy, but like that kind of nice, that nice liquidy stuff. And um, so I supported her. And then, yeah, I, I yeah. I was... Hang on a
0: sec though, hang on a sec, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Oh. How did you get to sorry <laughs> supporting B-Trace? Like oh, when, okay. like, when did you, when did you like decide to become a DJ? Or When did you kind of like fall into that? Because obviously everyone is different, right? So, yeah. yeah. So the
1: DJing, so I think, as I mentioned, my brother was doing it in the household. So we always had setups at home but I wasn't DJing. I was just like playing, you know, and also we only had turntables because I don't, I don't know when CDJs actually were developed, but
0: our house kind of mid, yeah, they started becoming in kind of standard in clubs, like mid 2000s, basically. Right. So like Like it was
1: in our house, we didn't have CDJs until well, like 2010, if even that, because my brother only had turntables and cassette players. We actually cassette players was a big thing in our household. Um, and CDs, obviously, we love a CD. I have so many CDs still, Um, but the DJN was when I went to Union Bath. So I was um at Urb. I was the station, the station manager for the four years. So I just realised,
0: really, that's a that's a position of responsibility, yeah, right there. I
1: know, and you know what? <laughs> I don't have a tech background, and I swear I could have left with a mechanical engineer degree because we rebuilt. <laughs> Her name's Francesca. That's the system that we used. I, we named her Francesca. We built her. We rebuilt her from scratch in the second year because the previous system was just so old. And um, I, again, I don't have a techie background. I have like basic techie, like back-end skills, nothing advanced. But yeah, so we, we built the system from scratch and it was in the second year. I was like, oh, maybe I should have a radio show seen as, you know.
0: Wait, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. You mean the back-end radio system? right i have no idea what that is what does that entail what does that consist of
1: so bath was obviously a very old uni so they were running on like a very very old god knows and you'd have to literally climb into like a ceiling like a, a um a loft to operate the system i don't even ask and it was literally like a bit like old doctor who if you think of like old doctor who like a machine <laughs> right. that looks like that but it was very old so it wasn't reliable so um we applied for a grant and we got one. And so a couple of the members in the team who were like full-on front-end and back-end uh, tech developers, they built Francesca. So it, it was obviously a much more digitised version where you can basically just, you just teach the system, you just build it and teach it yourself. Um,
0: right. And this is for what, FM broadcasting?
1: It was, yeah, were we, no, we were AM, We AM, yeah, broadcast, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, for broadcast. Um, and then obviously... There's a couple of systems that were already built in, like, into the computers that you could still use for, like, scheduling and stuff like that, but the actual, what we broadcast out of was built, um, by a couple of really intelligent guys in Bath in who were students at the time, and we actually won an award for it, um, as part of the Student Radio Awards, SRA, which would happen every year, um... Nice. Yeah. So, like,
0: how did you, hang on a sec, how did you become station manager? Is that something you just kind of put yourself forward for?
1: Yeah, I just put myself forward for it because you, I guess being a station manager is just more like organizational management skills, but obviously an understanding of like yeah, yeah, yeah. everything and like programming and, you know, shows, um events, like everything that you, in terms of all of the, st- the radio stations' output, not just on broadcast, but like actual physical, mm. you know, what we're doing in the local area of Bath and what we're doing for the student union um what's going on in the university itself. So like, you know, for example, a big thing that happened in Bath in it was 2016 was we got rid of our vice chancellor. Um, this was actually all on the news. It was like all on the UK news because it was it was shown that she was basically using the money not in the right way in terms of like bonuses for herself and colleagues. So we had a massive kind of petition and we managed to get rid of her. And that was a really big part of like the bath history. So we did a massive broadcast of it. And, you know, that was really fun. Um, things like varsities, you know, I used to play netball as well, but like when it was varsities, varsities we'd go and do live broadcasts from the sports center, everything and anything that would happen. We would kind of be involved in. So it was just kind of like having that 360 degree of like, what should the output be? What sh- what's the future of the station, what's the focus of the year as well, because each year you'd kind of have a different focus of what it should be, given the fact that, you know, it's a small um, team, resources are limited, so having a a lot more of a kind of focused output, but um, yeah, I kind of just put myself forward for it, and also it was musical, so it was really fun, you know, listening to the different shows, the opportunities that arose from it as well, like we would, we, we got invited to like so many festivals to kind of come and do like live broadcasts from loads of concerts as well. That would happen seldom in Bristol or Bath, but, um, but like some good ones. Um, so yeah, like some fun opportunities did arise for me. And that's, that's part of actually how the B traits opportunity came because the guy who owns moles, that kind of infamous club in Bath, we did a few bits and bobs with them. Mm. And then one day he just texted me and was like, because my, my radio show was, like, electronic-focused. Not that I was even... could mix. Like, not that I could even mix right, at all. Okay. Like, but it was electronic-focused. Very basic mixing, let's just say. And um, he was just like, oh, would you like to, you know, come and support b Traits? It might be a nice opportunity for you. And I was just like, yeah, why not? So I did. Nice. Not that I played drum and bass, but...
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, student radio is... I think it's kind of underrated. Like, it's mm-hmm. a really amazing... Kind of culture. I mean, I I certainly played on. I went I went to Bristol Uni actually a f- good few years before you were at Uni. But I, I played on the Bristol student radio station uh, for the yeah the three at least the two of the three years anyway that I was there and it was great. And I learned so much just, just from, just from playing you know, I wasn't involved in the, the organizational side of it at all, but just from doing a regular show, like programming a regular show and, you know, being you know, responsible for that in itself. Like, yeah, I mean, it was really, really useful. I have to say for me. It really so, is. Yeah, and I
1: feel awesome. like it's just a nice way to get for me, because Bath is obviously not a Bristol at all. Like, so no one who,
0: yeah, it's a small town. It's yeah. a
1: tiny town. Gorgeous, um, but it's tiny, and so our accessibility to nightlife and dance music compared to say Bristol just wasn't the same. So it was nice to kind of create that community within our little hub and you know, bring because a lot of us actually it was really ironic, a lot of us who were in the team over those four years were massively into dance music, so I think just accidentally we all kind of were pushing it a lot, and then Origins, who are now you know a big promoter in London were starting at the time so it all kind of was synchronized in that way but um yeah community and but specifically student radio is just such a great hub for it's just a hub and a center for so many things you know if you're starting out in uni it's just a great way to just stay networked stay involved and like particularly and specifically if you are into music like have a channel and an output for that
0: how did you find going to Bath from London? Because, I mean, again, this is uh, uh, something we have in common. I mean, I remember going to, like, arriving at Bristol Uni aged 18 or whatever, having grown up in London too and being mm. quite, I don't know, I was a little bit, I think I was a little bit snobbish about it, to be honest. It seemed like a bit of a small town to me, you know, yeah. going from London. It's a bit like, yeah, I mean, how was that for you? I loved it.
1: <laughs> I I loved it so much. I I, because I feel like London is just, it's a huge city, isn't it? And, Bath is the complete opposite and I really, really loved being in a town where I could walk everywhere or cycle everywhere, where the kind of um, accessibility to other human beings and like your actual friends, you know, like I lived on the same road as my friends for four years. Um, It's just also a gorgeous, gorgeous, like... To look at like visually aesthetically, it's it's gorgeous. In the summer, we go down to the Wily Weir, and like you can actually swim in the water, and you won't there's no risk of getting Viles disease or anything, you know, like which you can't do in London because it's just not clean. Um so that aspect of it is what I really I think I took from it, and which is also why I stayed for an extra two years. So I ended up living there for six years before coming back to London, but I I just I just love the tranquility of it and just the calming nature of it and just being kind of removed from the madness of London. And I also remember just thinking, like, I might not ever be able to do this again until I'm in my 70s. So, like, taking the opportunity to, like... Because when you're at uni, you have no responsibilities. Like, you don't have to do anything, really. <laughs> you don't have to, like... You know, you don't have to... Like, you don't have to pay... You have to think about, oh, I need to get here on time or I have to... this, You know you just have to think
0: about unless you're the general manager of the radio station. Yeah, no, yeah,
1: yeah, of course. But that's like a fun thing. Like, you know, that's not like, you know, I have a full-time job and a responsibility or I have, you know, when you live in London, it's like so much responsibility and it's quite overwhelming sometimes. And so I remember always being like, this is a time where I can not have any responsibility, but doing it in, in a really, in a really calming, relaxing environment. And it really was, you know, um, So, yeah, I I love Bath for that reason. And I I feel like I adapted very quickly to this. Just again, like maybe I'm quite sensitive in that way, but I just adapted to like the lack of sound in terms of no police sirens, um, you know, no noise after a certain time other than maybe seagulls. Um, Yeah, I just really adapted to that and I really enjoyed it
0: yeah i mean you're right it is a it's a beautiful place and it's also a very peaceful place too because i mean so it peaceful. is yeah it's it's small and it's yeah the scenery is is really amazing mm-hmm. so did you uh I get, to what extent did you kind of get into the music scene more generally i mean were you guys going to like bristol to, you know, to go to parties there as well because that's what a lot of people did when i was like yeah,
1: yeah definitely i was partying in bristol maybe like once or twice a month and like we had like Bristol uni friends so so yeah but as I said Bath was definitely that electronic underground sound was emerging and then yeah going to Bath um generally going out more like I was actually just generally out more like even if it was like you know festivals I was just out more in general um than I probably am now so yeah definitely would go to Bristol for some long weekends
0: yeah and then you know, after that, the first night with, with V-Trades, I mean, did you kind of catch the bug as it were, you know, the DJing bug? Like, was that something that immediately kind of drew you in after that in terms of like wanting to play out, or wanting to do it? Yeah, I think, unquote, properly?
1: I think it was, but I think I also, it's weird. So I think it's the idea of like playing music out that people have, you're like, I found this really great track and I got to play it to people that they maybe didn't know this track. And, I would do that on radio, but then doing it in a club and then people are actually dancing. It's like, oh, this is really fun. Um, So that was always a really nice feeling. And I remember I spoke to Brianna about this after because we were talking a bit about it and it was just like, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. I get it. Not, not, I get it like the way you get it now, but it's like, oh, I actually get it because it's one thing, as I said, playing music and someone listening to it on the radio, but like when it's done in an environment for dancing... You, it, you, it feels different. So mm. that was also, yeah, that was a really nice element of it. Um, but I'd probably say it's when I returned to London and started playing up more that I was, that's when I was like, oh, but actually, no, that's a lie. Actually, before I, before I, so when I returned to London, before I started DJing again, I was working, so I worked in radio, but then I also was a door, a door, I used to work on the door, on Friday and Saturday nights at um, Phonox and XoYo, and um, so when I'd up the door, I'd go in and watch whoever the residency was, and I think that was quite instrumental for me in like. When was that? Sorry. So this was two thousand. trying to get twenty eighteen to the lock to when we had the lockdown. So like four years, three and a half, three years. Um, so yeah, I was working in a job in radio Monday to Friday actually ironically i used to work with tim reaper um oh, yes. we used to work okay. together and uh, in radio and um and then oh yeah fridays and saturdays i would work the door for Nox xoy and so obviously in those clubs it would be residency base um every i think it was three month like, quarterly residencies and yeah uh,
0: i was gonna say because i actually i did want of laser xoyo but it was was before your oh, time by the time i you think do it do was it? uh Yeah, I was just thinking, I think it was 2016. So yeah, would have been before. Oh, I would have just missed you.
1: Yeah, I think I was still in Bath at the time. Um, So yeah, and so it was like, like when I finished at the door at like two, three, I'd go in for an hour or so and like, you know, hang out and just watch the DJs DJ. And that was very, that was like, I think that was a very key part for me because I just watching another DJ DJ, I was like, when do you ever get to do that? Like just stood in the booth of them. Yeah, And that I found, that I think was very special for me because I was able to witness the skills and the techniques of a variety of people, just like firsthand, like literally firsthand, and then maybe speak to them afterwards. I think that was kind of the bit where I I kind of understood it a lot better, you know, and also just the ecosystem maybe of the industry a bit more. So like, you know, a club having a residency, you create, you invite people, that kind of stuff. Ticket selling ticket sales you know doors even like capacity that kind of element of things and like working at the door you know you had to like really you know okay are we at capacity now um just different like really small intricate elements of like a club but yeah I think working at the door and then kind of meeting people also so I remember like I um I already knew her but I I met her again um in 2018 was Tasha I mean I'm already, I'm good friends with Tasha but I'd already met her but I hadn't seen her for a while and just like someone like Tasha, like watching her play on, you know, vinyl for me at the time, I was like, wow, okay. You know, um, like there's so there's so many people, but yeah, it was just, I was just always fascinated.
0: Um, yeah, Tasha was supposed to be coming on the show actually. Oh. And uh, it hasn't happened. We kept missing each other. We and need to get Tasha going, on the gonna show.
1: I'm going to message her after this and be like, you need to do the show. She's great. Yeah, she's yeah, just right. like
0: amazing give her a kind of, yeah, a prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> literally, right I'm literally, I'm literally going to
1: message her and be like, get on the show. Yeah, no, she's a wicked, like, yeah, I mean, I could talk about all day, but, um, yeah, she was one of the people that she played a couple of the residencies and, um, she, yeah, I was, just was fascinated. I mean, there's someone else as well. And I, I, I don't even want to say their name because their, their role in our scene is now like kind of being pushed out, but they were like, I, their skills were just like, 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 I've just, I, to this day, I'm always like, how, you know, this person's skill set is wild. Like, I think they were playing on three turntables um and, like, sweating profusely and, but yeah, in the door was definitely, I think, what, like, kind of, like, the nail, you know, in the grave kind of vibe of, okay, yeah, I get it
0: a bit more yeah it's really the um yeah it's it's the it's the sharp end isn't it mm. it's like there's nowhere to hide you know when you're kind of like sitting in that particular bit of the industry you know it's like yeah it's, it's the, the, the sharpest bit of the sharpest bit if you know what I mean you I know? Understand.
1: and I always think yeah. to people like if anyone is just maybe starting in the industry I always think like get if you can work in in a job like that. Like, you know, like Josie Mitsu used to work in the cloakroom at Fabric. Like, stuff like that. Because it's... Honestly, that is where I met everyone that I'm still friends with today. And, like, the relationships that you build, they will never... They will never die. And, like, the things that you learn that you just can't teach.
0: Yeah. So, um, okay. I mean, that brings us up to 2020, the lockdown. I mean, you've told this story a number of times, but if you don't mind, can you tell it again, please? The uh, black band camp into the Black Artists Database. Yeah. Tell me how this how this transpired, how it developed. Yes.
1: So it was the June, the specific month of June in 2020 when everything was going on and like on a global scale. And myself and some friends, um, actually, actually, this is a funny, this was a funny story. One of the people, so a group of friends of I who were like, you know, also DJs and producers in in our kind of underground scene We're in a kind of like a group chat. But one of them, I don't know if you are familiar with CCL, Chechi. Right. They also went to Bristol Uni and actually they went to Bristol Uni with my cousin so they're a bit older than me but I actually knew them before I knew them in the music kind of world. But yeah, we're kind of all in a group chat so like myself, Roxy Moore, um, CCL, Violet, um, and a few others, um, Doc sleep, and we're just like you know, just talk Cameroon Joseph, um, just talking about like everything and like what's going on, and just like what we as individuals in a scene can do to make it better for you know black artists. So it was literally a spreadsheet between us six, and um,
0: so i how to say, let me let me just ask you,
2: a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. About that.
0: Yeah. So, obviously, the, the kind of the context of this kind of social moment is the, the George Floyd's event yeah. and the kind of Black Lives Matter protests in the States, which obviously we're, we're watching from from Europe and the UK, and obviously then it kind of started happening here too. So how did that translate? I mean, obviously there, was, there, are, there are obvious parallels with music as there are in basically everywhere in society. But for you guys, like talking about it between yourselves, mm-hmm. where did the, you know, that direct thing come from? Like the actual, the kind of music mm-hmm. aspect to this? Yeah,
1: because I think the kind of common denominator was that this is going on in a different part of the world, but we're all feeling very impacted by it. But this sense of powerlessness and wanting to do more, but not, you know, none of us are MPs or government officials. And unfortunately, you know, they're, the, they're ultimately the people that can make the change. So we just thought within our respective scene, we can make a change. And I think that's like the important thing is like, you know, a lot of frustrating things happen in the world. Like all, like, you know, the, the world is a frustrating place and sure. you can't take that on personally, which I know is a very easy thing to say. But it's like, okay, if you do want to make a change, think about where you can actually make a tangible change within, you know, the world that you do operate in and where you do have a say. And that's just our little niche underground scene, I guess, was was the place that we could. And it, you know, very simple. And like my whole view, I'm like quite, I'm a very proactive person. I'm So I, I, I get frustrated, like, when things, like, what's the proactive resolution here? You know, like, that's kind of my view on life. So for me, it's like, okay, what we're going to do is make a spreadsheet and begin to list all the black labels, producers, DJs, bands that we know, and we'll share it with an art social group with the Bandcamp link. And then hopefully that way people will, you know, start buying music directly from these artists. Bandcamp, we're doing their... Uh, Bandcamp Friday so the the money's going 100% back to these artists and that's just a very simple but I guess pragmatic way of doing something and I always think like,
0: yeah, yeah. I think I think when when you have a, an idea like that, which is simple, then oftentimes those are the most effective things to do. Yeah, right? it's something that can immediately be understood by anyone who's, who's looking at it in a second. Do you know what I mean? It requires no further thought. It's like, oh, okay, this means that, and, and that's what this is. You know, there's no mm-hmm. further expl- explanation necessary, right? That's just the that's the essence of a great idea, right?
1: I think so. And also, like, it was just very authentic. It was just something I always like. I always say like it was just so organic and authentic the way it just kind of came about in a WhatsApp group chat, you know, like, of course it's unfortunate the way it had to come about, you know, we were watching a man die on our TV screens, which is very unpleasant. Um, and I always think like, you know, how come this wasn't done before? But again, it, like as human beings, it does often take something extreme to happen for you to react to, um, and we're not just sitting around thinking, okay, you know, that's just kind of life, you know. Um, so yeah, it was just, we made the spreadsheet and we st- we just literally circulated it within us and our wider circle and on our social media platforms. And then I remember we went to bed and then the next morning, so we left the sheet with l- like literally 30 names on it. And then the next morning they were like, six, 700 names on the sheet. And I remember going into the Google right, spreadsheet.
0: Amazing,
1: yeah. 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 I remember going into the Google spreadsheet and, um, I don't know if you use, I use lots of Google spreadsheets, but I don't know if you do use them, but if someone's <laughs> yes, in a Google spreadsheet, it uh, yeah. comes up as an anonymous animal. So like anonymous penguin, anonymous badger. And, um, there were loads of anonymous animals. And I, and I, and I was like, Oh, did you guys stay up all night? Cause we're all e- UK, EU based. So an hour difference. And I'm like, I'm sure everyone, everyone went to sleep. So, unless someone stayed up all night, and they were like, no. And then what we realised, I lo- then logged into, we all logged into like our socials, and the post had been shared like over a thousand times. And I was just like, Amazing. oh my god, like you know that kind of weird, like goosebumps, like oh my god, like <laughs>
0: yeah. what the hell? Sometimes social media is a force for good. Well, this right? is it. This <laughs> who, is it. Do
1: you know what I mean? And like this proves like things can be used in the right way if with the right intention, this is it. And I always hone in on that, like with the right intention, you know, organic, natural, not engineered in any way. And, and, and what, it, what it reminded me was like, everyone in the world at the time was feeling this because it's like, as I said, none of us are like government officials. We None of us have that level of power to make a change. But actually we provided a resource and a very simple way for every and anyone to contribute and and make a small change and i think that's what it was um you know it's just so simple you know i don't know Bokongo, here's the bandcamp link simple like so simple so i think there was just this universal feeling that everyone was feeling of like feeling i think a lot of us were feeling quite flat and demotivated and powerless and and you know, then there was like, okay, here's this thing, right? Now we can do something. And it just gave you back that drive, I feel. It gave me a drive that I think was lost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So And um yeah, yeah I mean we've we've already established that you're a pragmatic and practical person, <laughs> right? You're the kind of person that puts themselves forward to be a <laughs> radio station manager with no no prior experience. So yeah, so, so tell me how it then developed. Because I mean obviously it sounds like you were the right person to be doing this.
1: Yeah, so it was the June one. So I think, because that was the Thursday, the 3rd of June, was it the 2nd of June? Oh no, it was the 3rd of June. Then the June, Friday, the 4th the June of June. The June Bandcamp Friday. Yeah, so Friday the 4th I mean, yeah. of June 2020 was then the Bandcamp Friday. So we woke up on the Friday and obviously amazing, you know, nearly a thousand people. So that was great. And then the next July, Bandcamp Friday, Bandcamp were doing it again and I think they were donating all of the fees to a specific black charity. So, Someone from Bandcamp emailed us. A developer from Bandcamp emailed us. And then I ended up being in conversation with him. If he's listening to this, like, you're awesome. He emailed and was like, hey, I have come across this. And I think this is awesome. Can we jump on a call? Because this is honestly, like, wow. And so we had a call with him. And um, he was like, how can we help? And I said, what would probably be really good? So this is where my, like, basic backend technological skills from radio maybe came in handy. <laughs> this is when I was like, Oh, what would be really good is if we could somehow like integrate it all so that then if someone is, yeah, could we just somehow integrate our, you know, bit in, in, what we have with what you have. And then that's when he was like, yeah, but right now it's a spreadsheet. So then this is when we decided to up, to level up from a spreadsheet to like, like dot <laughs> So like a very basic, almost like a, um, dark web looking website. Very, very basic. But what it what we did, we just, so one of my friends who's an actual developer, I was just like, is there a way that we can just make this a lot more interactive beyond a spreadsheet? Also, a spreadsheet isn't safe. You know, it just takes one person accidentally deleting it because we wanted to leave it open so that there was no restriction and anyone could add it. And so there was a lot of trust in us and the, the kind of global electronic scene at the time. But yeah, I was like, is there a way that we can just make this we can transfer this, you know, artist name, Bandcamp link, but it's just in a kind of A to Z and it's just a lot easier to just, very simple, but an easy way to interact with. So then my friend then created blackbandcamp.info. And then that's when Bandcamp were like, okay, yeah, now we can. So there's there's a process called scraping. Don't know if any, technolo- any techies are listening, <laughs> but scraping is basically when you scrape information back end and you run it. You run the two pieces of information against each other, and it they will fill out the gap of what the other one doesn't have. If that makes sense. So I don't know. Say I had NYX and my genre was missing, but my Bandcamp was there, and then say Bandcamp, who has my Bandcamp, has my genre t- tags. That would populate the the missing genre tags on the when you run them across, and then it. And if you sit them Um, side-by-side back-end it will just continuously to scrape information so if i was to update anything on bandcamp that would then scrape the information onto the black bandcamp.info um yeah so basically we did that with them so back-end we integrated which just meant that we could run like so all the information was essentially there and populated nothing was missed you know sometimes people change their artist name so then therefore the url is incorrect you know things like that if it's the old name and it also meant that we could then look at what what was going on back end so like if scuba has gone on to click an artist's profile via which site and what city that kind of information that they they um Accumulate. Right, you
0: can monitor activity on it. Yeah,
1: right. I mean, not that we were monitoring activity, yeah. but it was just interesting to kind no, of see. But it gives
0: you useful statistics. Yeah, right?
1: like who? Yeah. I mean, yeah, me. This decision, um, like, what you know, what? Where are they? Where are they um tapping in from? Was it via you know the the social post or an actual website or was it via Bandcamp? But also, we could look at the traffic to them Bandcamp because obviously we were we were giving Bandcamp free traffic. Essentially, we were driving free traffic yeah. to Bandcamp. So um so yeah they were very like good with us in that regard so yeah we developed it and then as we as the kind of data as the as the artist list increased and increased over the months we then kind of um developed on the website and then it was in 2021 I think we were maybe at like three thousand, and I was like maybe we need to actually make this into an actual website with a lot more of a kind of user-friendly navigation element?
0: Yeah, because I, I was just going to say, because um, my understanding is that initially it was really effective, actually, for the people who are on there, right? Because you have a relatively small number of artists, yes. which is in, in a place which is easy to navigate, and you know people can you know, get, get on there and, and support them in a very easy kind of way. But that was demonstrably good for the sales of the people who are on the first... Uh, I guess the first few months of the list, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then obviously there reaches a point which it becomes a bit much, right?
1: Yeah, so it, yeah, it grew rapidly, which was obviously great, but it was like, we still need to make sure that as from a user perspective, for me, it was from a discovery perspective because it's about new discovery as all these platforms are about. Like how are you be enabling that new people are being discovered by new people? So we, that's when, and also it was, you know, a database at this point or directory, if you will. Um, So that's when I was like, oh, Black Artist Database. And then that kind of naturally BAD. So then, yeah, we just developed it into a website. So now you can, and I'm actually looking at it now and I can, I always like, there's always new names, you know, of people being added. But so now if you go into blackartistdatabase.co, you know, you can search by name, genre and location and then we also have this really cool feature called random shuffle, which I, which is my favorite thing. Um, so if you just hit random shuffle, it will just randomly shuffle you four artists that like, like just there. Um, that's yeah. I've just, I'm on
0: it too. I'm just, um, I'd, I'd read about that and I'm not actually used it myself, but that's a really, really smart little feature, isn't it? It's a really, yeah, because I mean, particularly when you've got that many like genres and artists and it gets to a stage where it's, Quite difficult to to navigate um, from a starting point, mm. but then if you've got this little thing here, it's just like it, yeah, it's just it's a place to start, isn't it? Which I guess really helps. But then also, it's going to throw up artists who you've never heard of. From,
1: well, right? this is it. So
0: yeah, great. This
1: is it. And then I think also just little things like fragmenting the genre. So on the previous one, I think we literally had like the most generic genre categories, like electronic. I think we only maybe had electronic and then we realised actually not everyone's electronic. So now in genre, it's, you know, acoustic, Afro-pop, beat, alternative, ambient, drone, bass, classical. So we really, like, we spent months going through, um, you know, what are the sub-genres we're going to go through? What are the sub-locations we're going to go through? So Asia, Australasia, Central Africa, East Africa, Europe, North Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Because, like, again, just from a user perspective, like, it's that discovery element. And I think... What can we provide that maybe, you know, the other platforms don't provide Where If you're specifically coming to discover new black artists, then these are, you know, factors that you might want to consider. And even just like the A, B, Z, just having the letters there and you can just click on the letter. So like, there were just like really, really small, like granular changes, but like changes albeit. be um, And then we also realised that whilst you know, Bandcamp was the platform that really was, I guess, at the time, putting their money where their mouth is in terms of, you know, every Friday we're going to... Oh, no, every Friday. Every first Friday we're going to waive 100% of fees. They were obviously the platform that we were initially hyperlinking in the artist profiles. But then we realised, actually, artists have profiles on many platforms, so we added the additional three platforms on there. Um, So what we have on there at the moment is Beatport, Juno Records and Juno Download. And, you know, there's still possibilities for adding loads more. Um, yeah. But it's just a way of just, like, directing you towards people's music in, in, every, in the easiest way possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So music discovery generally is something that we've talked about a fair bit on the show. And the challenges that there are right now are uh, in discovering new artists, just I think mostly because, well, I mean, so there's a couple of reasons, obviously, like the, the changes in music distribution and the change, you know, the prevalence of different platforms or not, but also just the number of people making music now and the, the ability of people to release music, which is much easier than ever it used to be, right? So, and that in and of itself poses challenges for people trying to find music that they like, right? Just because there is just so much. I mean, how do you fear as someone who's now running a music discovery website amongst other things how do you feel about music discovery generally
1: oh that's a good question that is a really good question and i'm trying to think like what what head am i wearing am i wearing dj head on wearing... my yeah i think music discovery so t- i think today i feel that people probably Don't, I, so, okay, so I'm quite young, like, I'm in my late 20s, and I still have a kind of maybe older head in terms of, like, digging. So, like, because I think it's quite easy now, you know, there's lots of new music, as we just said, like, being kind of served to us, you know, where it's, like, you only have to go on Instagram and you can now save, you know, posts. So, like, I do that a lot as well, you know, if someone's announced a new EP or an album. But, like, there is something beautiful about really discovering music and my personal kind of like serotonin hit is discovering old music so I love everyone knows me I'm like I'm big into like 90s tech house
0: like Right. But like traditional tech house. I I know exactly what you mean. That's an awesome genre of music.
1: It is. So, like, I remember like the first time. It's
0: not like tech house now. It's not. It's
1: really not. It's really, really not. So, I remember like the first time I discovered someone like Trevor Rockcliffe, I was in um, a record store in South London and I was like, what the hell? Like, what is this music? And then. And then I discovered him and then I just went down this like rabbit hole of like Trevor Rockcliffe for like two months and I was on Discogs spending like all my money on anything Trevor Rockcliffe that I could find. Um, But yeah, I think music discovery is just such an important part of like, you know, if you're a DJ, but also if you're not, but if you are a DJ even more so, I think there's something really special in discovering. For me, it's about like tracks before my time that I didn't have access to or I didn't know about. So... I remember, like, the first time I discovered, like, Spencer Kinsey, a.k.a. Gemini Sounds, something like that. Um, I remember, so I've obviously always known Mr. G, but that man's discography is wild. <laughs> like... It is. Did Was he, like, I just, like, today, I'm, like, even today, I'm still finding music, and all his different aliases, like, you know, Mr. G, G Flame. Um, what's that other alias that had, like, 13... Different people, the the advent, like the advent, you know, like so for me, like I'm still learning about oh the advent, you know, you know it wasn't just it wasn't just G Fame and Mr G, there was like 15 different people in the advent, and I didn't know that until like two years ago. So like there's just something you're always learning, and so like music discovery, I think beyond you know all the digital tools that we have access to, you know, like as I said, I discovered Trevor Rockcliffe in a record store in Southeast London. And then I was on, like, this, this crazy Discogs, like, obsession. But it's really important that, like, we're looking beyond the tools just given to us. And, like, the, everything that's now, here and now, I feel personally. All of my best, like, music discoveries have been, like, tracks from pre-2000, definitely, on, like, non-conventional platforms also, Um some forums there's some really fun forums as well but i think music discovery that's like the key part of what we do like that's that again it's like the serotonin hit and then like when you get to play something out and you're like yeah yeah. but yeah i think but but i will also say having access to tools you know such as bads or you know the, the the ones that we all kind of use Bandcamp and stuff is also great because some of the things that you can do now that you couldn't do before when i guess like only vinyl existed like you can add tracks to your wish list, which is so is like such a key feature because you might not be in the mind frame for buying that particular sound now, but you know you will be like next week or something. I don't know if you have this as well, I'm a bit like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: So but yeah, music discovery is like such an important and and beyond like what you know, you know, like look beyond your world and your your circle like the tools that I as I said given to you like There are so many other platforms with so many more new artists and music that we don't know about. But my personal kind of um, adrenaline kick is like older stuff. So like, yeah, that kind of old, older, older stuff. Yeah. Anything, even like, even like grain. Like I, I think it was like 2019 when I found out grain is artwork and I was like, oh, and then. And then I found out he has multiple aliases, like Santos Rodriguez, and like so that kind of stuff. Like you learn so much; it's like a learning um, exercise as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, initially, uh, and I've I've discovered this partly through researching for this conversation, read all your previous interviews. But I mean, the the initial you know, the Black Panther theme and then into Black Arts Database caught a lot of attention, a lot of press attention, and, and there was a lot of. Um, I guess the dance press, as it were, it involved itself. Yeah, there was a bit of a kind of frenzy of interest around anything that was that could be bolted on mm-hmm. to yeah. the, the George Floyd mm-hmm. thing. And I think, and I don't, I don't know, having read a lot of your interviews, you're um, what's the, what's the word I would use? You're a bit sceptical about the um, maybe ulterior motives, or maybe that's maybe that's putting it a bit strongly. But in terms of um, you know, using, I suppose racial politics to sell magazines or the equivalent now to sell digital advertising or whatever the equivalent is now. So, I mean, tell me about your experience of catching press attention with that and then how you felt about it.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm generally not a cynical person, but I'm just, I guess aware. So it's just about like being aware of how, why and when a narrative or rhetoric is being pushed. So, Um, Obviously, at the time, it was obviously important to ensure that dance music, editorial, you know, reviews, publications were centering the narrative around black voices, black black platforms, black artists. Um, But it's equally important to look at the longevity in that. And is that a continued practice? You know, it's not because I I always worry, like, is this just immediate gratification or is there actually a long-term investment in wanting to do this? Because, as a platform or an editorial publisher, you recognise actually we should continue efforts to always, you know, showcase music from a diverse pool of artists. For example, let's say rather than
0: yeah, just I, the I time. guess it's the difference between I guess sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but I guess it's the difference between just covering it as a story mm. and then actually getting involved in addressing the issues that are in that story yeah right?
1: and and like i as i said i'm not a cynical person i'm just aware so so let's say three and a half years later what changes or it's not really ch- is it changes or what what new pl- what new procedures policies practices have been implemented maybe so from my perspective and you know what we do at bad there have been some really great for example, venue managers and programmers that we've worked with over the past few years who have reached out to us with a genuine, hey, we would like to work with you and invest resources in creating a night, something like that. Right. And I always, and I'm always very, um, I always like keep tab on like, yes, because this person, you know, actually reached out to us and not only us, but I've observed them doing this with, very upper, previously marginalised groups. Um, so one of them, I, I I always end up bringing him up and I, and I don't think he minds, but um, the, the club Village Underground, they hired a new venue booker, programmer in a couple of years ago. And since he's come on board, he's really just taken the kind of learnings from the pandemic and put it into practice. And I think that's what it is. It's like, Who are the people that have taken the learnings and actually put them into practice now rather than at the time shouting the loudest maybe and then nothing's, where's the action? I mean, I I have like a lot of personal, I really am not into like, I don't have a Twitter account and I don't use my social media in that way for like shouting. (laughs) I really am against it. But it's like for me, action and practice and like just doing as, you know, the, the platform BAD, just do it. So, yeah, the, so that's a really good example. You know, he reached out to us and then we delivered one of my our favourite events. It was in... What year are we in? I forget what year we're in. This was... Was it last year? I think it was last year. We did it last year, May at Village Underground and we brought over Ace Moma from New York. We had OK Williams and it was like, they worked with us so well in delivering the night, you know, as I mentioned, putting resources forward. And it's just things like that. So... I'm always conscious of like and then if you were to look at I mean Roche did a really good piece on the letter to RA which came out in the pandemic in 2020 and you know he really took a quantitative analysis of the numbers and percentages of articles that were written about different demographics and you know maybe if we were to do the same now from that year versus this year would the numbers still be the same probably not but you know I get it if you're a journalist you need to write about what is topical and unfortunately you know as someone who comes from a marginalized group like I'm a woman and I'm black I've learned that as a woman who is black that's two characteristics that are used in that way in 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 this industry you know so you will see like when is something peaking and then when does it drop off because it's no longer maybe as relevant or topical or cool or trendy as it was at a particular time and obviously everything is contextual and relative to, a, you know, space and time. Um, but it's just about like practices. Like I, I, it's not about, for me, it's not about like every, you know, um, review or piece needs to be, it's just about like, what are you internally practicing or what are you putting into place? Like what resources are you putting in where, what practices mm, are you implementing yeah. internally? And I don't need to know about that. That's the thing. Like, I don't need to know about that, but it's just always something I always think for people who run things like, what do you as a team or organisation internally do?
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that like a lot of this stuff in terms of the action that people try and give the impression that they're taking is a bit of a box ticking exercise mm. a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, I call it, I call it moral Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> I've actually got a term for this kind of activity. I call it moral Olympics. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay,
0: that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And I think like the uh the, the, the press, I, I I spend quite a lot of the time on the show bashing the music press. And I don't really <laughs> I make no apology for doing it. But I, I definitely think that this is an area where it's it's particularly obvious, like who's working in this in this field. Mm. Like it's just very white middle class, slightly left of centre. Um, you know, and that is expressed in like trying to make it look like A lot is going on in this area and other kind of associated areas. But actually, it's a little bit transparent, I Mm. find. I mean, I don't know if you agree with that, but uh, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah,
1: I think, yeah. And like, yeah, I guess people like us, like, we're privy to just noticing these things more. Um, It's also interesting you mentioned class, which is definitely another factor that I think plays... big role yeah I
0: think it's a hugely yeah and it's not
1: spoken about often it's not it's really not spoken about that much you know like nepotism and who can has who has access to what and who doesn't but I agree I think like for the the keen for the eagle-eyed ones amongst us who are just more privy to this you kind of can see what's going on but look we're in an industry aren't we so it's like that's kind of yeah yeah that like like you know as i said like i've come to accept that i unfortunately i'm in two boxes that can be weaponized in ways that i can't control um and that is how the world operates unfortunately but again like taking it back it's like okay but what am i doing and what are we doing and what can be done to yeah like
0: yeah. because
1: i can't change the fact that you know the world penalizes black women for example i can't like i can't change that but i can do something within my realm to say showcase more black women you know so that they aren't on the periphery of you know i don't know if it's bookings or you know fees you know things like that um Mm. but yeah
0: yeah and like you said actually doing something is (laughs) <laughs> very obviously much more effective than just shouting about it on social media, which is another yeah. kind of box-ticking exercise, I think it seems. But actually, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I had the economic class thing down as a question, but I also wanted to ask about what... You've you've made reference in more than one interview uh, to the kind of ownership structure mm. of media institutions and other things. So, I mean, is is a lot of it, do you think, down to that or at least partially explainable by that? that the, a lot has talked about diversity in music and diversity of performers. But actually I've often noted that the diversity on the kind of back end mm, of the industry, mm. whether it's whether it's club promoters or owners or you know people who who you know, edit magazines or own magazines yeah. or whatever, that's a that's, that's a big scenario issue. in which diversity is yeah. yeah.
1: It's a big issue. So yeah, I'm really actually I'm really happy you brought this up. Thank you. <laughs> um and thank you also for reading doing your research
0: before. Oh, well, this is it's it's, just, it's, fun, it's funny you say that because I mean, I know as someone who's been on the other side of this conversation more than a few times mm. is that the, the general kind of like level of preparation that is often done for an interview is, isn't great. So that's all I try and do. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. Carry
1: on. Um, yeah, I'm really happy you brought this up because this is a very important area. So I think it was in 2021. I always forget which body that released this, Piece of research but only six percent of c level so ceos etc of c c levels in the music industry in the uk were not white so six percent were not white so i can't i don't even, the percentage of black i it was just like not even i can't remember it was like 1.2 percent something like that so when you look at who's in charge who's owning who's monopolizing who's dictating it's not people from the marginalised groups, where the voices need to be heard. So, ultimately, you know, if a publication is owned by someone not from a particular demographic or a label, I mean, labels is quite an interesting one because I think that's.
0: By the way, sorry, let me just interrupt you and say that that is from UK Music, uh, the agency,
2: and okay. it was from the. Yes.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, because I actually read this as well. It was the UK Music Diversity Report in 2020 is what you're referring to there. Thank yeah, you, yeah, yeah. thank it's you. Because really
1: so I think The Guardian did a big double page piece on it. And it was kind of, it was, it was more in relation to like more popular music. So it was actually more in relation to someone like Stormzy, I think, and like what Stormzy is doing to claim ownership. Like, you know, he's got his books, he's got, you know, he owns, he has a tights, he has a tight company, tights company, where they make tights for darker her skinned like brown and black skin, and I don't know if you were, at, I don't know if you were at Glastonbury in 2019. So he performed on the pyramid stage. Sorry, I'm digressing, but it goes back to this. He performed on the pyramid stage, and all his dances were ballerinas, and they were all black, and they were wearing the tights. And then he was...
0: Oh, really? That's what, okay. Yeah. I I remember watching that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was like, oh, this makes sense. Because I remember being like, why is he... But yeah, so yeah, it was in relation to, like, someone like Stormzy creating, you know, he's got murky books, he's got this, and, like, he's a black man that owns these entities for black people. But um, specifically in dance music, there is a problem where the majority of everything, so labels, publications, clubs, are owned by white, People, white men and how do you how do you enable like room for people from a different demographic necessarily if you're not from that demographic therefore don't have a, a natural understanding or viewpoint perspective of that demographic to ensure that for example the space of a club is suitable for people from a certain demographic to ensure that money you know, the, the the label thing, I think, is the one that I'm always, like... And, uh, like, it's difficult because, you know, historically, a lot of black music... I mean, we had it in the lockdown with um, Robert Owens and Larry Heard. They had to take a label to court because they received, like, no money from their most famous song. Um, so it's just, when you think of things like that, it's like, imagine if we just owned more of our own stuff and then could redistribute within ourselves in that way but it's also the decision making processes that it plays a big part because like this is just as human beings you know sociologically psychologically research shows you are you see what you are so in internal bias we all do it so if you're going to book someone you're going to naturally book someone that resonates more with you as an individual than someone who doesn't if you're going to hire someone it's the same thing so this has a trickle down effect on everything down to lineups you know you essentially bring on what resonates with you so whether it's you know hiring someone into your company um lineups you 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 create what resonates with you as an individual that internal kind of bias unconscious bias so yeah so essentially based on that knowledge alone if everything is run by a white person, basically, then how on earth are things such as lineups or you know supposed to diversify and I think also then it just kind of branches out to like your circles um but the ownership thing is actually specifically the importance is like ownership in terms of like distribution of actual resources, whether it's financial, whether it's you know um i don't know venues because. The issue there is we, black people, unfortunately, do not own enough in the music industry to enable ourselves to then flourish independently. So, unfortunately, it's like, you know, unless you have, I mean, look, we launched the label this year, which is something that I've been wanting to do for a while. And that doesn't mean that I'm never going to release on other labels. Actually, it means opposite. It means that I feel more comfortable releasing on other labels because I know I have my own label to kind of go back to and my own internal kind of you know nuances and like ways of doing things that will come back to us but there is an issue where we just don't own enough so then unfortunately a lot of artists especially ones that grow and develop have to kind of resort into going back into being managed by maybe an older white guy who is quite far removed from them as a younger black female perhaps for example Mm. um because how many black managers are in our industry? Almost none. Like they're really, they're really, honestly, genuinely, I only know one, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, how many black agents are there? Yep. So just like when you think like your craft that essentially derived from your history and ancestors, you're still given like 20% to someone else. And like, again, I'm not saying that's a problem because it's really not. And every, I, everything should be down to like, is this person actually good at their job? But the issue is, is when you just don't even have more than two people from a different demographic, then what? What you know, you're kind of stuck. There's not even options.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting actually because I mean, there are there are obviously uh, examples here which are you can easily kind of put your finger on like it's, it's you know if, if you if you think about a relative economic disadvantage then it's pretty obvious mm. why there are fewer numbers of clubs owned by black people for example but but mm-hmm. it's less obvious uh when you're talking about something like something like artist management or booking agents or whatever like that seems to be a kind of slight a sort of more deep-rooted I mean, everything's. I mean, everything's related to economics, obviously. But I mean, yeah. you know, there are there are there are things which are which are easy to put your finger on, and other things which are not so much.
1: It, it is this is true, and and but and now that I've, but also I have to say that like I'm coming from a perspective of, so I was you know I'm I still have a Eurocentric lens because mm-hmm. I was born and bred in the UK, London and Bath, and now having you know with BAD we've now got the label, we throw our own parties, and I'm like oh. But this is much easier than, you know, why not have more people doing it? But actually, you know, let's be honest, you need money to invest in things before you can even bring them to life. So, you know, that's a big hurdle that unfortunately a lot of black people come from different socioeconomic backgrounds that don't allow you to do that. You know, my my agent and I have this conversation all the time, you know, if you, to be an agent, you have to, because, you know, there, there aren't that many, for example, working class agents. Yeah. Or agents from poor associate economic backgrounds, because you are literally relying upon someone else's salary for your own salary. So, like, how can you do that? So, there is just so many factors that come into play. Like, as you said, like with a club, you know, how many black people have generational wealth to say, "I am going to put down X amount and buy a, a, a you know a club." I always big up Nathaniel and Bradley because you know they've got Jimby, kind of factory now Moko, and um, what they're doing is great, but it's just so far and few in between and. That's something I would love to see more in the next 10 to 50 years. I think we're also challenged with the government that we have at the moment because grants, which are a really big, something that I, I really want to, you know, anyone that's listening, grants are a great, really great resource. But unfortunately they're being cut. Mm. Um, so that makes it a challenge, for, especially for like grassroots, community-based entities. But grants are a really great route as a starting point yeah. for, you know, applying for a project base grant and then utilizing that money to, to, to realize that project. Um, but like, as I said, we're living in a, in a, in a challenging time where, cause you know, when I was, when I was young, back in my day, <laughs> no, when I was younger, even things like, I mean, Laban was paid for, but like even just little things like in school, you know, you'd have like additional music classes, which you did not have to pay for, yeah. you know, things like that. And it's like, now you can't even, you know, people are having grant applications rejected who have been receiving grants for over a decade mm. so yeah i think the ownership thing is really key and i mean but ultimately you know we live in we live within systems that work against us as black people you know we're 400 500 years behind financially than the rest of you
0: yeah i mean i guess some i mean that's true but there is an economic class aspect to all of this and obviously not everyone who's lower class economically speaking is black i mean mean, no of course
1: not of course not i mean and then also not everyone who is rich is white yeah you know there are a lot of middle class black people also but we don't have we haven't accrued the amount of wealth that middle that that a lot of the that the rest of the world have yeah or non-minorities have which would allow us to just quite easily say Oh yeah, I'm just going to open this because I've got that money just sat there, you know. Or accessibility again; it's another big one. Another, you know, a lot of people have to work alongside before they actually do this full time because they don't have savings, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So there's just so many factors, but I think yeah, ownership is is a big is a is a big thing that needs to be remembered. And yeah, not just you know the DJs; it's like behind the scenes, you know, like who's the head A and R. Who's the head, um, who owns the venue? Who's the head booker? Who's the head programmer? You know, because they're the ones that dictate and make the decisions, the final decisions. So, yeah, it's an important thing that people should just definitely, I mean, you know, when I go into a club, I always I'm, I always look at, like, the engineer, the light technician, right. the door person, the bar staff, and just kind of look at, like, what are the demographics, you know, of these people. Because that really is telling of the space. Totally,
0: I mean, the sound guy is always an ageing white guy, just every 100% of the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, But yeah, it's definitely that I, it's just something that I always hope for in the future. There is just a lot more ownership. And as I said, Nathaniel and Bradley Zero are, you know, two people pushing at the moment. And it's so nice to see because you, when you go to Jumbi, the majority of people that go out of colour, mm. you know, like it actually makes a difference because there's an actual trick-or-down effect, Right. you know, so it's definitely important. It's, it's 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 really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, like just to sort of like start to wind this up, like tell me about how you you see the Black Arts database developing. I mean, obviously you, met, you already mentioned that you started the label, but how do you see it kind of like panning into the next few years?
1: So... Yeah. So I guess for us, it was beyond just the kind of resource. We started to put on events, um, panels and workshops. We were doing like Ableton masterclasses. So those kind of additional complementary, and I always say they're free, everything other than the events, but everything we provide in terms of like workshops, masterclasses are free. Um, And we also launched the label this year, which has been a big highlight for us. So I guess, the next steps for us is developing on releases so we've got the next six releases lined up which I'm really really excited about the next one's in February um really really excited about that and it's just a great way for us to showcase music from artists on a global scale like but music that we really like um events wise I mean we just it was last month we just did our event at school on the Friday of AD actually um that was really good and we've got quite a big one next year happening um and then in 2025 we'll be off we turn we turn 5 so we've got a few things lined up for that but i think also it's like i always have to remind myself and like the small team like we are already doing a lot so it's like you know we've already got this resource that just lives online for free for everyone to access um you know we send out monthly newsletters and mailers which kind of have updates on like what's going on with other black artists, um, what grants are available, what sessions might be coming up. You know, for example, recently Saffron just announced their, so sorry, Saffron is a, for anyone not familiar, they're a um, music production workshop platform specifically for like women and non-binary trans folk. And they just announced uh, an application which is for black women, non-binary and trans folk. So, you know, sharing, sharing, you know, um, resources such as that to the, to the wide community. So people know what's going on and what, you know, you can apply for and have access to. But I think the next year is looking, it's quite label heavy. And we've just got a couple of key events to kind of complement those. And yeah. And then otherwise it's just kind of just continue. And we just always kind of remind people to go back to the resource, um, because it just, it exists there.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So last question, just uh, (laughs) give me a couple of examples of your favorite artists that you found via that shuffle function, which is so good on the, on the website.
1: So one of them, well, there's actually, there's been a few, um, but one of them, it was so funny. So this was last year, beginning of last year, shuffled on them. And when I clicked on their profile. And then when they have a website, so on their band bandcamp they then had their website, and I went into their website, and I was reading about them, and I was like, oh, this person sounds really interesting. So they, in the country they're from, so they're from um, Malawi, they run like a, they run their own kind of music production, but they use like modular synths mm. for like young kids, and they've done stuff with like Noel Rogers, and just A whole host of stuff, and I was like, Wow, this person's really cool! And I and then I just continued to dig deeper, listen to their music. And then, so their name's Chimba, C H M B A. You should check them out, that they're a great engineer, I'd say, maybe more so. Mm. Um, and then we actually released one of their tracks on the compilation this year because I was just like, Your music's sick, but also like the stuff that we're doing is great, and the work that they're doing in their home country, but also they come to Europe quite a lot. It's just like, I was like, wow, like they worked on Noel Rogers' most recent piece of work with them and Madonna as well. And I'm like, this is great. So yeah, that has been one of like my most interesting discoveries. Another one was, there have been some of the artists that I think are probably more prominent in East Africa, like through the Nyege Nyege kind of circle that I kind of tapped more into um, through Random Shuffle. And... One of them was Monrea, um, so her name is M O N R H E A. I think she's is she from Nairobi? I think I think it's Nairobi, Kenya. Actually, she's from, okay. um, and she makes like more like it's kind of like ambient techno. Okay, cool. If that's if you describe that as a genre. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's been a couple, and then there's been a couple like um, I can't remember this artist's name. There's one that like, I came across a few months ago who kind of is like it was more like world music. Vibe. so not electronic at all but yeah just like some cool random artists but like I think the kind of highlight was Chumba who then you know I thought oh let's just reach out to her and see if she would want to be a part of the comp
0: and then it all worked out which was nice yeah great cool well N- Nick, this has been this has been great thanks so much for your time
1: Oh, thank you <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was Nick's. What an interesting conversation. She's done a lot in a short space of time, basically, and obviously is thinking about things in, a, I guess, an interesting and, and pragmatic, practical way, which I think is great. And I think it's the kind of thinking that really can make a difference in those areas that we were talking about towards the end there. So, yeah, really, really good stuff. Really enjoyed it this week. I hope you did too. Just before we go, a reminder, Pledge Drive is on. So sign up to the Musicality tier on Patreon to get your free t-shirt, scubaofficial.io slash support, or go directly to Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash scubaofficial. Actually, I posted a bit of writing on there last week, so you might enjoy that. In fact, that's actually open as a free post. You can actually sign up to Patreon without signing up to a subscriber tier. If you want to just register your support, you can do that as well. If you don't want to do that, then that's fine. In fact, there's no reason why you shouldn't want to just sign up on Patreon but if you don't want to do that it is fine just hit the follow button wherever you're listening to this podcast whichever platform you're listening on follow the show leave us a review or a rating hit the five star button and join us in the discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord or actually follow the Spotify playlist as well there is a playlist link in the show notes to this episode okay this has been great I'll check you back here same time same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast thank you not a diving podcast, but scuba.
2: Cool Planning for your next trip?